Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Bob here, and I have 101 tips for enlightened project management. I've got Joseph on the line here. And now I'm going to try your last name, Dramisi. Well, that's very good, Bob. Uh, yeah, Dramisi is how Dramisi. I pronounce it. Yep. Uh-huh. This is like an ongoing thing with the show is Bob's inability to pronounce words properly. And, and uh, I did one show the other day and I could not pronounce the uh, the name of the book for the whole show. And, I uh, thought it was a little you, embarrassing. you did pretty well with Consigliere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're bringing it up. Oh, yeah, I was. that was tongue-tied for that one. But anyways, um, an awesome book. And as it says, 101 Tips, it is chock-a-block of tips. Is actually 101 tips. And, uh, you, you know, when you write a book like this, it's, it's almost impossible to end it at 101 because by the time you get to 101, it's like, oh, maybe I'll just throw 101 plus one because this last tip is even better. Did you have trouble coming up with just getting it down to 101 tips? Um, no. Well, you know, it's... Uh I don't know if I did that or if I just, I picked a number. I picked mm. 101 because the way this came about um, was I didn't I didn't really plan to start off writing a tips book. Someone had suggested that to me mm. and uh, I was actually planning to write another book and I thought, well, I'll write the tips book at the same time. I'll just, I'll use material from the other book as tips and I'll end up with two books. And that was, that was kind of my approach with it. And I found that um, a lot of the things that I say when I'm teaching worked really well as tips. It was kind of a short statement and I'd write three or 400 words on the short statement, tell a little bit about uh, what happens if you don't do this particular tip, what the tip can do for you, maybe a little story about the tip. And uh, I, you know, I started a little word file and I thought I'd just throw those in there as I'm writing the other book or working on the other book. And I found that the tips came very easily just because of all the teaching and, and how handy that was. And the book kind of wrote itself that way. So I probably could have kept going. The The person that suggested the tips book had shown me her book and she had 111 star power tips. That was the name of her book. And I thought, you know, I just, I thought, well, I have to pick a number. 101 just sounded good to me. So I picked <laughs> it and uh, went with that, but you're right. I think I could have easily uh, gone past that. Well, maybe the next book is a thousand and one. <laughs> Could be. Actually, there's a tip in here. I can't remember which one it is. Is is basically do the minimal amount of work for the maximum amount of effort, or something like that. And so, a hundred and one is much better than a thousand and one. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think uh, I think you're right with that one. It, it accomplishes the uh, the goal. Now, um, I want for, for our listening audience because I think. Um, even though it's such a basic question, I get great enlightenment after asking stupid questions. But um, how do you define a project manager? I mean, that's a crazy question to ask, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what a, what a project manager does and what his scope of responsibilities are. Um, no, actually, that's a pretty common question. Uh, you know, people ask, what is project management? And we in our profession, uh, the way we define that as a project, for instance, is uh, defined by something that's got a specific start and finish date and something that produces something that's unique. 
so by that definition, uh, like in my background, coming from engineering and doing a lot of defense work, the projects I've managed were, you know, involved things like developing a radar system for uh, aircraft, things like that. But planning a wedding is just as much a project as the radar system project is. So what, what project managers do is um, try to uh, define what, what needs to be done and then lay out the work that has to occur to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Uh, you'll see in, in the book I talk about hard skills and soft skills. Uh, I talk about the six characteristics that make up a pro and, and, uh, an enlightened project manager. And one of the first characteristics or the first characteristic is a, a solid understanding of not only the hard skills but the soft skills as well and the hard skills they talk about developing a budget and managing risk and developing the schedule and that kind of stuff and those are things that a project manager has to do we have with a project they'll come up with okay we have this set of requirements this is what your thing your project has to produce and the project manager has to figure out okay well what what skill sets do I need? What kinds of people? What work actually has to be done to accomplish this stuff? Um, how long is it going to take? How do I plan it all out? Um, what resources do I need? How much is it going to cost? All that stuff is the, the kind of hard skill part of it. The uh, What I think is equally important, if not more important, is the soft skill part. Because what project managers do uh, is, involves interacting with people. You're interacting with your team, with the customers, with your management, with the public, depending on the kinds of projects you're doing. And uh, the uh, degree to which you will be successful is very dependent on your emotional intelligence and your people skills, how you get along and work with people like that. Uh, a configuration or an organizational structure that's real common in the workplace is something we call a matrixed organization where uh, people will generally work for different functional managers and those functional managers will supply people to the project managers to support the project. So as a project manager, the people that work on your project don't necessarily work for you. You don't control their salary or their bonuses or things like that. And so you have to be good at your, your people skills, for one, to get the people that you want, to get the good ones from the functional managers, but then to uh, encourage those people to uh, you know perform as well as they can perform because that's, that's how you're going to be measured. Your success is going to be greatly dependent on how well those people do the job. Hmm. Now, um, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of stuff that the person's responsible for. Do you find that a lot of the startup part of the project is 99% uh, research? A lot of it is planning. And uh, and another common problem that you see in the workplace, uh, there, there tends to be a resistance uh, often from management to uh, spend enough time planning a project up front. If you've got a project that's supposed to run 18 months, it seems reasonable to spend four or five or six weeks planning that project out, laying it out. And... Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, there's resistance to doing that. And what happens is, you know, a lot of the bad things that happen on projects that, that cause problems with budgets and schedules and things like that are things that are predictable. They're things that you could have foreseen and avoided had you taken the time to plan them out. It's just a lot of times we don't do that in industry or out in the workplace, and, uh, and it causes a lot of problems. Yeah, it's it's this um, this constant 
losing time and having to catch up and say, I will just let those out. We'll move it forward. I mean, it drives me nuts where people take six months to make the decision to move forward and then they come, yeah, can we get it done in a week? And said, dudes, this is a six month <laughs> project. You just wasted six months. No, you don't get to do that. Um, What's the difference between a non-enlightened manager, uh, a project manager, and an enlightened project manager? Is it just the experience? Is it the ability to be sit in a meeting and say, well, you know, guys, <laughs> this is crazy. We, we, we really have to – it's going to fail if we do it this way. Or is it more um, being able to deal with the craziness that, that happens during project as it, as it twists and turns? Um, it's a little of each of that, I think. Uh, like I said, I define an enlightened project manager by by six characteristics. I think it's the first tip or the first thing I lay out in the book. And one of the things is having a very a very solid understanding of not only the hard skills but the soft skills, as I was mentioning. And something that's interesting, uh, I teach project management for one of the universities out here in San Diego. And one of the things I'll have students do is uh, as a homework assignment, I'll have them go find a working project manager or program manager. And I'll have them interview that person, and there's uh, 13 or 14 questions they ask. And then they come back to class, and we go through what they've uh, found out. And it works well for me because I have no idea who they're going to talk to. And usually what happens is the people they talk to reinforce what I'm telling the students in the class. And what's interesting about it is there are certain things that are very consistent from – from student to student and from class to class. One of the things that's consistent is about 75% of the people that they talk to that that have the title project manager out there and are working as project managers have no formal training or education in it. They've learned on the job. And um, part of uh, the kind of bad thing about learning on the job, I mean, you need experience. That, that's that, you know, It's not a completely bad thing. But a lot of times you'll learn bad habits or you'll reinforce bad habits, particularly if you've worked at the same place for 15 or 20 years. You just know how they do it. And whenever a problem or an issue comes up, you only have one way to approach it. As an enlightened project manager, I'm saying you have to have a solid uh, knowledge of the hard skills as well as the soft skills. And I'm saying that you need to get that through not only experience, but through education, training, certification, so that you understand the theory behind um, why things work the way they work. Because project management tends to be very mechanical, or it's a lot like physics. If you do this thing, you'll get that thing. And if you don't understand how things interrelate, if you haven't been trained in it, it's very difficult to to do it successfully. As as you pointed out a little bit uh, a few minutes ago, there, you're responsible for a lot of things as a project manager, and I know I, I was a design engineer for about 14 years, and design engineering was much easier than project management because you controlled a little bit more. With um, with project management, you're you're responsible for many things that you have a lot less control over. Mm, it's like herding cats a lot of times. It is. It's very similar to that. So <laughs> uh, an enlightened project manager would be more more knowledgeable in the in the bigger picture, more knowledgeable in the soft skills. Uh, and I point out a couple of other things. Uh, the uh, You'll hear this a lot in the workplace where companies will say people are, are our most important asset or our most valuable asset. And most companies say that. If you go into most places, you'll be able to find that on a mission statement or it'll be on the wall or it'll be on the back of the cards that you have to uh, – your badge or something like that that you have to wear. 
And uh, many companies just don't behave that way. They just kind of say it. As an enlightened project manager, I'm saying you should really recognize that people are the most uh, valuable thing that the organization has. And as a project manager, an enlightened project manager, you should be doing as much as you can to help those people develop, uh, both professionally and personally. So that's another characteristic of an enlightened project manager. Hmm. It's like an overseeing guru. Yeah, you have to uh, you have to really get involved in that. You've got to have an, another characteristic. Uh, should probably just go through all six of them. The, uh, <laughs> the other characteristic is to for yourself to have a uh, a dedication to lifelong uh, you know learning and growth on a personal and a professional level as well. It makes you stronger. It makes you a better. Makes you better at what you do. It it makes it more enjoyable for the um, the things that you do at work because uh, at our level, you know, most project managers, you're you're probably um, mid to senior level people in the organization. You're not quite at the executive management level, but you're probably just below that, especially if you're running bigger projects. And um, at that level, you should be enjoying this. You should be having fun at work. It should be an enjoyable experience. You spend uh, more time at work probably than you spend at home with your family. And it should be an enjoyable um, process. And it's and it's not for a lot of people. I'll ask this question when I speak to groups. I just did a, a dinner presentation last month and I had about 100 people there. And I asked the question, I said, let me see a show of hands. Who works for the greatest company they've ever worked for uh, doing work that's really fun? You work with great people. You can't wait to get up in the morning and get out to work. You've got the best boss on the planet. Let me just see a show of hands. And out of 100 people, I'll see maybe seven or eight hands. And then I ask the people, I say, okay, those of you that are here with your boss, go ahead and put your hand down. Or if you work for yourself, put your hand down. And that'll usually weed out a couple. But, um, you know, and that's pretty typical. I ask classes that too, and I get the same percentage, I guess. And I argue that uh, at our level, you know, I should see half of the hands in the room go up. I mean, you should enjoy work. It should be a fun thing. We're professionals. And um, <clears throat> and it's it's not at a lot of places, and that's one of the things that hopefully this enlightened project management concept will contribute to is uh, helping change that a little bit in the workplace and, and helping people have a better experience out there. Okay, well, that that, that makes two questions. The first one, uh, what makes a great project manager? Who should become a project manager? What type of personality type uh, works best as a project manager? And number two is... What percentage of the workplace craziness makes a project manager's job a nightmare? I know those are two totally separate questions, but if I don't ask them right now, I'll forget. Okay. Well, the, the first one, you have to remember the second one for me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the first one, uh, what makes or what characteristics make a great project manager or what, what do you need to have if you want to go into yeah, this? Yeah, the personality. Like the, 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 of a, of a, if you meet somebody and he's a certain type of personality, in the back of your head you say, God, that guy would make an awesome project manager. Yeah, I think one of the first things is you, you have to naturally have a good eye for detail. Uh, you have to be able to look at things and, and really be able to plan things out or really be able to see what has to be done. And you'll know this, uh, you know, at home, if you're the one that plans the family vacation and they go well, you know, that's a good indication of it. Um, you know, you, you need to be able to envision if, if you, you you see a set of requirements, the customer or management, someone comes to you and, okay, this is what we want to do. Um, you need to be able to see that, okay, just see right off the bat, I can tell we're going to need this, we're going to have to do that, we're going to have to do this. And if you're good at planning that kind of stuff out, if you're good at having that kind of detail, that's a good natural characteristic to have as a, a successful project manager. The other thing is, again, how do you 
interact with people? Do you enjoy interacting with people? Are you, are you good at that? Um, a lot of times coming from my background, from engineering with technical people, a lot of technical people aren't naturally good or comfortable at interacting with people. And a lot of them really don't like to do that, which is part of the reason they're, they're engineers or they're technical people in the first place, because they would rather sit there and do the science and do the engineering than deal with the, the people stuff that you have to deal with as a project manager. So, um, you know, I would say if you're, you're naturally good at planning and seeing the details of things and, and being able to put that kind of stuff together, as well as you enjoy interacting with people and you feel like you're good at it and you're comfortable interacting with people. Because those are really the two big things that come into play as a project manager. Hmm. Okay, so, so, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to add question number two. Yes. I yeah, that one is um, things that, that drive a, a project manager nuts uh, that, you know, they are uniquely, perfectly geared psychologically to be a perfect uh, a project manager. They, they know project management. They're working in an organization that just doesn't seem to work for them and it makes their life miserable. So what type of organizations uh, and how, how do you, because really, if you're a project manager, you've read the book, and you're working in an organization that doesn't get it, how do you fix that company is probably a better question. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big challenging question or a big big challenging area, I guess. Uh, with project management, you know, we have a lot of uh, – a number of certifications. There's uh, the one big certification, the project management professional is uh, a global certification. That's the one that's probably the most uh, widely recognized that comes from the uh, Project Management Institute. And um, what you know, you can know all this stuff and they, they, they focus more on the hard skill things, but there's a lot of basics that you have to understand to get certified and there's a big exam you have to take and, uh, they require a bunch of experience and all that. But even knowing all that, if you're in an environment, uh, where the workplace culture is not conducive to good project management, you're going to struggle no matter what you know. And some of the things that aren't conducive, uh, some of the things that I've found in the workplace anyway, when there's a focus on uh, on short-term revenue, because this is a big problem, I think, in the workplace, when management is focused on on their monthly revenue so they make their quarterly numbers so they can make their annual numbers, uh, they tend to make bad long-term decisions. And with project management, as I would mentioned a little bit earlier, a lot of it is planning out what you're going to do, is laying this whole thing out, uh, trying to figure out uh, what risks you're facing and how you're going to manage those risks. Um, you know, laying out a budget and a schedule and all that. If you have a um, a management culture where they're focused on short-term things, what they tend to do is they they tend to change priorities uh, very often, like weekly. Uh, they'll tend to come down, and you'll have managers come and and directly talk to your project team and direct them to do this or do that. And it's very difficult to uh, to manage in that kind of environment. So um, that that's kind of the biggest thing I think. Uh, the that focus on short-term revenue is, is probably the most destructive thing. There, there's other reasons. Uh, there's other bad things that happen out there too, but that one's a big one. Um, something that Stephen Covey calls a uh, an industrial age mar management paradigm is another common thing out there. A lot of the management ideas that you see in the workplace now were developed 60 or 70 years ago, and they don't fit real well in the workplace now with today's workers. And um, when you, you have that kind of thing, it just makes it very difficult to successfully manage projects. So I would say those are two of the big things that happen out there. Well, you know, that that's uh, that's very, very interesting that there's 
a very interesting book we did uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, a guy out of Australia, and he talked about how uh, fundamental managing structures and managing books have to change because the things that they're teaching are so out of date that it's actually hurting companies. And the people that have been basically brought up in the new generation, and they're much more connected, they're much more social uh, using technology, not just sitting around the water cooler, um, managing and running organizations that are filled with people like that is a completely different beast. So I wanted to ask you, have you noticed the same thing? Yes, and uh, and that's part of what inspired this book. Actually, there's a a movement out there. Uh, if you you look around, you'll see something called conscious capitalism. And uh, I, I was uh, I don't know if I, met, I mentioned in the book that I, I read a lot of books. I included a book list actually at the end of the book, and uh, I tend to read a lot of these books, and then I talk about a lot of them. Uh, in class that I'm teaching. And I was having coffee with a friend one day and we were talking books and he said, oh, you have to read these three books. And he had mentioned um, Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, who is uh, one of the founders and CEO of Whole Foods. Uh, and then there was another one called Conscious Business by uh, Fred Kaufman, who I believe is an MIT professor. And then a third one called Firms of Endearment by a guy named uh, Raj Sisodia and a couple of other people. And uh, all three of them talk about the same thing. They talk about businesses that take a more conscious approach to um, to how they run their their organizations. Uh, they try to make decisions that that benefit all of the uh, all of the stakeholders equally. They try to make decisions that benefit the employees, the customers, the shareholders, the public, and they try to run their businesses that way. And they find that businesses that take that approach tend to outperform their um, their competitors significantly and consistently. And um, some of the companies they mentioned, the obvious ones that you would think, uh, Google and Apple, Whole Foods, uh, and then some other ones, uh, Charles Schwab, Costco is another big one that they mention. And there's a number of companies that do that. And uh, when I, I read these books and I was thinking about it, and I thought that made a lot of sense to me because uh, one of the things I found in my career in the workplace, I always enjoyed what I was doing. I always enjoyed... Uh, when I was an engineer, I, I really enjoyed engineering, and as a project manager and a program manager, I always enjoyed the work. What I didn't like, usually, was the work environment, the culture, the management. And uh, for a long time, I thought it was me. I would switch jobs every couple of years because I was unhappy. And then as I learned more and found out more and talked to more people, I found out that, no, this is a pretty common thing. And um, with the, the conscious business approach, they're changing that. It's a much more people-oriented approach to running the business. And they're finding you can be very successful at that. So um, what I was thinking was that, you know, I, I believe that that's the way business is going in the future because I think companies that if your competitor starts taking that approach to it, you're going to have a choice of either going along with that or you're going to be losing. So I think that's where uh, businesses are going to go in the future. It's just I think it's going to be a long, kind of slow, painful change, but it's happening. So I was thinking, well, you know, since project management is so integral to almost all companies, because pretty much all companies do project work in one form or another, I thought project management should be evolving with that. I think project management should be thinking that way as well. So that's actually what inspired me to come up with the enlightened project management concept. And then, you know, the start of that was this tips book. So, um, so yeah, I do agree with that. I do believe that's a, a big deal out in business today. Hey, let's dig down into the book a little bit because it is a tips book and, and literally it's tip by tip by tip. How should a person 
consume the book? Should they read all the way through the book or should they jump into the front and, and, and try and find a tip that's going to work for them? Uh, well, I think it's a reasonably uh, easy read. I, I tried to write it in a more of a conversational style so that it would be easy to read so it didn't come out like a, a textbook or a technical book. And um, the tips, I tried to keep them short, you know, three or 400 words for the most part for each tip. And uh, so you could certainly read through the whole thing. It wouldn't take long. I think a uh, probably a more typical way is to scan through the the index and look for tips that call out to you. Because there are, um, there are going to be tips that really make sense to you. There are going to be some other ones you might disagree with. But what I uh, propose to people, you know, there's 101 tips in there. Uh, I would argue that if, if you took 10 of those tips that really called out to you and you learned them and practiced them consistently, you would see a noticeable improvement in the um, – in your performance and your your level of happiness and satisfaction with the job and the performance of your team as well. So um, I think that might be an approach there is maybe scan through and uh, look at the tips that sound interesting to you and then read through those. And uh, like I said, if you can come up with, with 10 or 15 tips that you consistently practice, you'll see a noticeable improvement. Okay, here's a tough question. Out of all the tips, which one really resonates with you? What is your favorite uh, tip? Yeah, and there was a tip uh, in there, and I, I, I can't remember the number of it. Um, okay, tip number 96. And uh, it talks about getting the right people on the bus. Uh, not only getting the right people on the bus, but getting them in the right seat. And where that comes from, uh, Jim Collins wrote uh, a number of books, the, one of the big ones being Good to Great, which is a classic business book. But uh, in there, he uses that bus uh, analogy to get the right people on your team, to get the right people in your organization first. Um, I know I take that a step further. I think other people have made this observation too. Is it's it's important? It is important to get the right people on board, but it's important to get them in the right position. Um, and to do that, again, that goes back to the emotional intelligence and the soft skills part of it. Is getting to understand your people and their their skills, their talents, their desires, where they want to go, how they want to progress, and try to utilize that and get them in the right positions. We had uh, at one of the places where I worked, we had a uh, a very senior scientist who was um, kind of the father of the radar system there that we were developing, was our big product. And um, he was a, a very brilliant individual, and he had been with the group almost from the beginning. And uh, after a while, as we were growing, uh, management decided that this person should be the uh, engineering manager, should manage all the engineers. Uh, he really wasn't good at it. He really didn't want to do it. The engineers didn't like it when uh, this person was in that position. And um, management still tried to force that. And we limped along like that for probably a year and a half, almost two years. And finally, the guy ended up resigning and he left and went to a competitor. And um, we lost a, a huge asset. This was a brilliant person that, that we should have had because he was in the wrong seat on the bus. Uh, they were trying to make him the engineering manager, and it wasn't a good fit. He should have been used as the senior scientist, as the, the technical face to the customer, uh, someone that was creating white papers, someone that was helping the engineers get unstuck on technical issues when they got stuck. And they forced him into a management role and um, it didn't work out well for anyone, and we ended up losing someone that we didn't have to lose. So it's it's very important not only to get the right people on the bus, but to make sure you get them in the right seats. Hmm. You know, you talk a lot about, about, about the soft skills. How in a situation like that um, can, can you tell if a person's in the in the right seat? And that sounds like it's a pretty obvious question, but, you know, 
if it was that easy, that guy never would have left because people would have said, you know what, you're unhappy, so guess what, we're going to find you a better position. I know a incredibly talented lady who works for Shell, and Shell came to her, they analyzed what she was doing for another company, they were headhunting her out, and they basically said, you know what, there's nowhere in the organization that you actually fit, so we're custom making a position for you. And she's been doing incredible stuff for that company for the last 20 years. See, and, that, and that's an example of very good management. That's enlightened management. <laughs> that's, that's how people should be thinking. And uh, unfortunately, at the organization where we were, again, you had, if you remember that, that industrial age uh, management paradigm that I told you about or that we talked about a little bit earlier, the, um, the thinking, you know, that, that thinking that comes out of the 30s and the 40s where management knows and it's a very, very command and control or, or direct and control methodology um, for people that, that think that way, for, for this scientist to say, well, you know what, I'm not happy here, the the response is usually well tough this is where we think you should be and you need to be here or you need to find something else and you know it's that kind of mentality that's what i was saying doesn't i don't believe works well in the workplace nowadays and i think the better companies are changing it and the better response is just like um you were talking about the management in that shell organization where they they recognize that they recognize that that was a valuable person like the point i was making earlier where people really are the most valuable thing that a company has and um they recognized that that individual was very valuable and they went out of their way to create a position so that they could take advantage of that value that that person brings to the organization. Mm. Um, let's talk about uh, software. And I know you're, you're, you're not a huge fan of software, but there's tons and tons and tons of software that's out there. A lot of it is very complex, very expensive stuff. But for the you know your average business owner, should they be investing in this super high end software, or or is something as uh, basic as Trillo or uh, something like uh, Basecamp, very basic stuff? If you if you get your head around uh, project management, can those so- can that that type of software help anyways? Yes, I think the. Um Software is uh, certainly a tool that can help out, and uh, it's very common. Uh, Microsoft Project is a very common one that project managers use, but uh, there's other ones, and uh, it's okay to to uh, make use of the software. I mean, software is fine, and it's uh, and it actually is uh, is very helpful with project management. But again, it's it's only a tool. You've got to know the other things. Uh, a lot of people rely too much on on things like Microsoft Project or um, or uh, some of the other tools that are out there and not rely on, on getting people trained up so that they understand the theory behind what's going on. Uh, you know, in, in college, uh, as, as going through uh, an engineering program, for instance, you still have to learn uh, calculus and physics and all that stuff, even though there's a lot of software out there that does a lot of those calculations for you now as an engineer. But you still have to understand the background, why it works the way it does. And I think that's um, important with project management. That's why I'm, um, I'm an advocate for certification for getting your PMP and stuff like that, because it teaches you the big picture, it teaches you how all the uh, pieces fit together. And then as a project manager, uh, you can go through and pick and choose the things that actually add value. Do the things that add value for your company and don't do the other things. But you have to understand how it all fits together before you can go through uh, and intelligently pick and choose the things you're going to use. And software is the same thing. Software is a tool. It's, it's not a – I don't think it's a substitute for – 
for having the training and the knowledge, the understanding of of the fundamentals of project management, but it's certainly a very helpful tool when you're going through and doing the management. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like being, um, you know, you're orchestrating, like a project manager, yes. you're, you're, you're an orchestrating. So, you know, the more I think about this, the more I realize that everybody is a project manager in an organization. I mean, come on, if, if, if your CEO can't manage a project, um, which is move the company forward or, or it's not as vast as a, a project manager because he's not dealing with as many people, but isn't everybody's day-to-day life project-driven? Um, yes, and that's what I was saying earlier. A lot of, um, almost all companies do some type of project work, whether they under, whether they realize they're doing it or not. Typically, when you bring in a new uh, CEO at a company, that CEO is going to have, he's brought in because uh, the board of directors or whoever's in charge is, is um, recognized a problem with the company. Something is not the way they want it to be. They'll bring in a new CEO and the CEO will have a mandate to change this thing and they'll be doing some kind of transformational change over the next you know, year, two years, three years, five years, something like that. Well, that mandate, that change, that's a project. And that's what that CEO is going to have to manage with his, his senior management team is to figure out, okay, I know where we want to go. What do we have to do? How does this have to work? And so, yeah, they're certainly managing projects. And that's what I was saying with the book, uh, 101 Tips for the Enlightened Project Manager. It's you know, it's based in project management because that's my background. But but realistically, many of the tips in this book are applicable to anybody that that works um, with people. Really, if uh, you manage teams or you work with teams or on a team, you interact with people. There's a lot of the tips in here are, are applicable for you. Well, even uh, organizing a camping trip. Sure, that's what I'm saying. If you've uh, if you've planned a wedding, <laughs> you've done a a very high stress, very uh, typical project. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about pivot theory because that seems to be a, a, a hot word. It was a really hot word about a year ago. Um, do you think uh, working in an organization that's as pivot-driven uh, is tougher for a project manager? Um, I, I don't know that it's tougher for a project manager. Again, you have to – as long as it's planned out and you understand what you're doing uh, – because uh, some people will say that too. We mentioned software earlier. Another one of the uh, exam prep. Uh, workshops that I teach is for Agile certified practitioners. And Agile is a project management approach or a methodology aimed at software development, which uh, a lot of times software development projects struggle trying to manage them traditionally for a number of different reasons. And uh, one of the things that the Agile people talk about is embracing change, knowing that the change is uh, is is very uh, typical. It's very common. It's valid. It's going to happen. So why why resist it? Why not embrace it? And they they structure their approaches that way. And uh, you can manage projects very easily that way as long as you you have it planned out and you're working with it. As long as they're not as long as they're not um, erratic changes or not not well thought out you know changes in priorities from day to day which i've seen at places where they, they literally change priorities from day to day makes it very difficult to manage anything if you're doing it that way yeah if, if you've got uh, a moving target it makes it very difficult to be successful because a lot of your resources or and uh, maybe um, energy and and positive thinking gets dissipated over time 
Well, it does when you're shifting like that. I had a uh, senior software developer describe our situation at work to me one day. As, uh, he described it as a if you've ever watched a little kid's soccer game, you'll see all the little kids run into a big pile, and then the ball will squirt out in one direction. They'll all run to the ball again, and then they'll be in that pile for a little bit, and the ball squirt out another way. And uh, that's how he was describing the shift in priorities with their software development there. It was like every day seemed to be something different. And there's um, when you're doing that kind of stuff, there's, you know, you mentioned lost time or lost focus there. And that's a very real problem nowadays. The uh, unfortunately, the, the concept of multitasking got very popular, what, in the late 80s, 90s, something like that. And it's still around, unfortunately, today. But people do not naturally multitask well. And particularly if you're doing something that requires a lot of thinking or a high degree of concentration or focus, um, you you lose time. I know as a um, when I was a design engineer working on CAD systems and you know doing computer modeling, um, I would get you almost get inside the computer. It seems like when you're when you're working on something for a while, you get in there. You've got all these things in your head. You're doing the model when you have to stop to go to a meeting or to address some question or do something else, they say it takes about 15, 20 minutes to get back up to that level again. If you imagine the number of times people get interrupted during a typical workday for different things, it's very easy to see how you lose hours in a typical workday. I know if, uh, if you look at, um, uh, at research from people that study uh, productivity and things like that, they'll tell you that in a typical eight-hour workday, you probably do two to three hours of productive work. And a lot of that has to do with shifting back and forth between different things. So um, that, that change is a real, uh, a real counterproductive thing. If you have a very chaotic environment where there's, there's constant shifting of priorities, constant changing, it, it really drags down the productivity of the people. Um, you know, that that is so true. There, there's actually an awesome book you're going to love. It's called The Rise of the Superman. It's all about getting in the zone and how you can be incredibly productive. Another book called um, The One Thing, which is basically you get up in the morning and you have one thing that you have to do. And you if you concentrate and get into that, you will accomplish that thing. And then you find your next thing that you have to do. So it's almost this is a, a, this kickback from don't multitask, be focused understand that the most important things you do first thing in the morning and then the rest of the day you can do by socializing or doing the the this disruptive stuff which is an important part of the day i'm not saying that you you can't go into people's office you can't communicate with them i mean in your book that's what you talk about a lot is you've got to do the soft skills um building um trust and and uh you know chatting with people so you get these uh you get these reports that are off the cuff, and a lot of times those reports, they'll reveal something that would never come out in a requested report. So um, do you think that uh, with the change in um, the way things are done, uh, and it, it kind of harks back to my, my question earlier about um, how younger kids that are more socially plugged in are, are into social media, blah, 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 the pace of work. Do you feel that that's a little counterproductive and, and not in the sense where people are uh, multitasking, but just the pace It's like things have to get done so much faster. You can't say, oh, it's in the mail anymore or the fax machines out of paper. It's like constantly be reminded about emails. Is that counterproductive? Um, I think it is to a degree. I mean, the, certainly the technology is has uh, – 
saved us or not saved us it, it's improved our productivity i think in certain areas i mean imagine now if you didn't have a a copy or if you didn't have email how you know how tough would that be to uh to work in that kind of environment you know we forget it wasn't really that long ago and we didn't have these tools but uh it, on the same by the same token it can still um i think it can it can be counterproductive as well. You have to, uh, it's like everything else. You have to manage these things. Uh, one of the big issues you'll hear at work a lot of times is the amount of email that people have to deal with. And I've even heard of, uh, companies that were limiting or doing away with email because, uh, I know when I worked, uh, when I worked in corporations, when I used to do that, um, I could get, you know, easily 70 or 80 emails a day. And, uh, not that I had to respond to all of them, but I did have to look at them and, uh, it's distracting. And I, you know, tried different things. Uh, I would have the email say in the background on my computer, but that little, that little flag would pop up. I would see an email come in. And even if you don't look at it, it's distracting. If you look, you see the name on it, oh, it's from the boss. Okay. I'm going to have to stop and look at that or do something. And, um, it's distracting. I know of, uh, people that would turn their email off during the day. And I think I tried that for a while, maybe looking at it in the morning and then looking at it again at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock and then maybe looking at it again in the afternoon. But um, it could certainly be disruptive. It's just, it's like anything else. I think you have to manage it. I think you have to manage the, uh, you have to manage it so that you, you kind of get the benefits out of it and you minimize the uh, less beneficial aspects of it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times people spend a tremendous amount of time trying to uh, create an email that gets a point across where they could have just picked up the phone and spent 10 seconds talking or 30 seconds talking, saying, Joe, I just need to do this, get some feedback, boom, 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 it's done. Whereas you try to write that same thing in an email where there's no emotion involved and no feedback, it's very difficult. Sure, and that's a soft skill thing too that we talk about. With communication, they say, uh, depending on who you look at, it's it's right around 90% of communication is other than the actual words. It's your uh, your voice, the tone of your voice, the inflection, the volume, your facial expressions, your body language. And that's one of the reasons with emails, uh, we've all had this experience where people are writing an email and they're trying to be funny or they're trying to be sarcastic or something, and it gets misinterpreted, which creates another storm of emails to try to deal with what, you know that perceived uh, issue. And um, you know that's that's one of the reasons why the face-to-face -face communications is uh, is a much better way or a much more effective way to communicate because I mean we're people that's what we do. Mm. Well, I'm mean, definitely more hardwired to listening through our ears instead of listening through our eyes and trying to interpret that way. I mean, it's just maybe in in 30 years it'll be different, but gosh, we've only been using email for a very short time amount of time and telex machines and stuff. But you think of the thousands and thousands of years that we've been communicating via verbal. That's really what our brains are attuned to. So. My question is, for all the people that are out there listening to the show, what's one thing that they can do today, other than buy your book, obviously, um, <laughs> uh, that they could do to become a better project manager? And, and I'm, I'm, and I'm talking on the on the enlightened side. Yeah, and I think, uh, and this would be not only for project managers, but uh, I know sometimes you'll ask about, you know, what what's a good tip for people who are in business or would just like to make the business do better. And uh, for pro whether you're a project manager, an entrepreneur, a, uh, you know, a functional manager or whatever, I think uh, one of the most effective things you could do is is step back and refocus on the purpose and the people 
rather than rather than the money, I think, on what you're doing. If you have a business or if you're part of an organization that does something, chances are you build or you create a a pro, a product that is a really cool, really valuable thing for your customers, or you provide a service that's a, a really great value or a great thing. Um, I think focusing on that and letting the money follow that. If you focus on the purpose and the thing, whatever it is that you provide or you create or you do, and doing that well, I think the money follows that. I think where where companies and people get in trouble is when you focus too much on the numbers. Uh, I think you you make decisions and you do things that that maybe degrade the purpose, the thing that you're actually really there to do, and um, that's another thing that'll it'll take a lot of the fun out of it. If if you're constantly focused on the numbers and those things, I mean they're important and you have to pay attention to them, but if that's your focus, I think you're going to make decisions that that make you do whatever it is you do less well, and I think it makes it less enjoyable. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, actually, that is so true. <laughs> well, good, good. <laughs> well, do you, do you think that, you know, um, here in North America, we've been struggling with the economy for, for quite a few years now. And one of the things is when the economy dips a little bit and you're, you're struggling, people tend to over-focus on the bottom line because, quite frankly, that's quite important. But when do you start realizing, okay, guys, we've got to start changing our attitude here. We've got to start building again instead of trying to run the company by the numbers. And I think for me, it's an easy thing. Uh, I you know, look at it and say, is this fun? <laughs> Do I enjoy coming here to work every day? Because uh, like I said, if you talk to uh, entrepreneurs, people that start businesses, they uh, it's very different if you talk to people in a startup and then you, you talk to people that, okay, they went through the startup phase and now they're, they're several years into it and they're in that growing phase. And it, it's a lot, the experience, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people saying, you know, it's just not the way it used to be. It's not as much fun as it used to be. I think if you could look at your organization, look at the, you know, when you go into work in the morning, if it's not fun, something's wrong. I mean, even people at the executive level, CEOs should be enjoying that when they go in. And I think the better ones would tell you that, that, you know, I really enjoy being here. I enjoy doing what I'm doing. I couldn't imagine retiring. You know, if, if you've lost that, I think it's worth, uh, reevaluating and seeing what you're really doing. Chances are you're focused too much on the numbers and you're focused too much on the short term. And um, that's what's happening. Well, and it almost goes back to your one of your favorite tips. Um, you know, you may start off on one bus, but in four or five or 10 years, you might be on a totally different bus and you should be in a different seat. Oh, or absolutely. In a different bus. Yes, I think I've switched buses and seats a number of times in my career. So, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's good. I mean, one of the things, you know, I was a, like I said, I was a, a mechanical engineer for about 14 years and a project manager and a program manager. After about 23 years in total, I decided I wanted to do something different. And my only plan, the the level of detail I had was that I wanted to uh, earn a living through a combination of consulting, teaching, writing, and speaking. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much the extent of my plan. And I quit my job and went out and uh tried to do those things and it's been about three and a half years now and I've been able to do all of those things now and um, I'm, I'm very happy with it. So uh, yeah, I think we do switch buses and definitely switch seats uh, often. For people that want to know more about you, um, are interested in the book, maybe follow up after reading the book, what's the best way for them to learn more and, and, and understand more? 
Well, um, right now, there's a book website. It's uh, enlightenpm.com, and there's information on the book on there. I'm in the process of uh, putting a speaker's page on there because the focus is going to be in 2015 – uh, the focus for me is going to be doing a lot more speaking events, so you're going to see me out there doing a lot of that. I'm teaching uh, workshops now on enlightened project management. I'm doing half-day workshops and full-day workshops, and uh, I want to evolve this into two-day workshops as well. So coming in 2015, you're going to see a lot more of me doing that kind of stuff, a lot more speaking, a lot more workshops on this um, environment. There's another book uh, that hopefully will be in the works uh, next year on the same subject, the more detailed uh, um, treatment, I guess, of the principles behind enlightened project management. So uh, the place to start is going to be the speaker page that hopefully I'll be adding to the website by the end of the year. So that would be a good place to start. Awesome. We've had Joseph on the line today, 101 tips for enlightened project manager. And this guy knows his stuff. I mean, he's got Joseph... And then he's got all these acronyms after him, and I don't know what any of them mean, <laughs> but he must be a smart guy. Been fantastic chatting with you. Uh, very enlightening. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I enjoyed this. This was a great, uh, a great talk. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.